do want to mention that if you've come prepared to give in support of what God is doing in and through um, the Rock Community Church, there are offering boxes at the back beside each of the doors. Please uh, make your contributions there. If you haven't already done so, I'd invite you to turn to uh, John chapter, I saw that, Alan, John chapter 9. I have to admit that I've really enjoyed this in-depth study of the Gospel of John. Folks, it, it just doesn't get any better than this. Here we're studying the author and perfecter of our faith. And I know that it can get long. We've been at it for almost a year, and we've just completed John chapter 8. But let me remind you, it's not what we know, but it's who we know that counts. And uh, we want to get to know Jesus. I'm praying with the Apostle Paul for all of us that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know him better. John doesn't hide his purpose for writing this actually fourth account of the life and ministry of Jesus. In John chapter 20, verses 31, 30 and 31, he makes it crystal clear. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John's primary purpose was evangelistic. He wants his readers to come to that point in their lives where they're willing to trust Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And so he's providing evidence. That's his purpose, primary purpose in writing. But at the same time, for those who've already made that decision, it grows our confidence in the message and the one in this gospel that we are commissioned to share with anyone and everyone who will take the time to listen. So I say that, and in my mind I'm thinking there, there are probably three really good reasons for us to give ourselves to the study of the Gospel of John in a context like this. I think, first of all, in a, in a crowd this size, with this many people here, there are some who have never trusted Jesus Christ alone as their salvation. They've never believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. They need to be introduced to this Jesus that John's presenting and the evidence that he is the Christ. And then there are others here who think that they are genuine believers. They maybe even claim to be, but they're not. They desperately need to hear this story again and again. And hopefully in hearing it, they will hear it for the very first time. And they too will be able to respond appropriately to God's demonstration of love for them. And then there's a third good reason, and it's for those who are genuine believers, and I assume that that 
would speak to most of us here. And I turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 7, where the Apostle Paul writes, instructs us to walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Rooted, built up, established, and overflowing in gratitude. Thankfulness. That's what I hope happens as we study this gospel. And it, I'm excited about it. The impact and the influence that it can have in our lives. But as we come to John chapter 9, it's all about the healing of a man blind from birth. It describes the event in the first 13 verses. And then from verse 13 through to the end of the chapter, it's all about the follow-up from that healing. This morning we're going to focus on the event. Specifically, the perceptions of those that were present. And there were four of them. Four groups of people, well, or individuals. Jesus, of course. His disciples, who are now reintroduced to the Gospel of John. They've been silent. We didn't even know they were in Jerusalem in chapters 7 and 8. And then there's the neighbors and others, acquaintances of this man blind from birth. And, of course, finally, the man himself. And then, looking ahead to the next couple of weeks, we'll spend time looking at the effects or the fallout from this sixth of the seven miracles that are recorded in John's Gospel. You may recall that John refers to these miracles as signs. They were never intended to be just miraculous demonstrations of Jesus' power. Not in John's mind. They were signs. They were pointing to something. Or revealing something significant about Jesus, the person, his ministry, or his message. Let's just take a moment and review the signs that we've encountered thus far. The first was in John chapter 2. The changing of the water into wine at the wedding in Canaan of Galilee. In fact, John refers to it as the first of the signs. This miracle launched Jesus' public ministry. Secondly, in John chapter 4, Jesus heals a royal official's son from Capernaum without ever going to Capernaum. It was a remote healing from a distance. John chapter 5, he walked among that multitude of sick people gathered at the pool of Bethesda. Remember that? This one just blows my mind. And he chooses one man who was lame for 38 years, and he heals him instantly. Number 4, John chapter 6. Jesus feeds 5,000 men, not including the women and children. So probably a crowd of about 20,000 people using just five loaves of barley and two fish. 
later in that same chapter, Jesus, in the midst of a storm, walks out on the Sea of Galilee to rejoin his disciples who were trying to cross the sea in a boat. And then that brings us to number six, John chapter nine, where he heals a man blind from birth. I'll give you a sneak peek ahead. John chapter 11. Jesus heals his friend Lazarus by raising him from the dead. Seven miracles, or seven signs, chosen by the Apostle John to include in his gospel account, under the inspiration of God, of course. Seven of a multitude, thousands of miracles that Jesus has performed by this time. We've already read it. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And then the very last verse of John's Gospel, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not be able to contain the books that would be written. Ah. Think about that. All that resource material, and John picks seven miracles and calls them signs. You have to believe that John was absolutely intentional on the ones he chose. He chose them for a purpose, and they're a sign, and they're revealing something significant about Jesus, his person, his ministry, or his message. But first and foremost, these signs or miracles were chosen to provide evidence. Remember, this is an evangelistic presentation. Evidence that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Christ, the Son of God, God dressed in human flesh. He's not just a man. No man can turn water into wine, heal the lame, cure the sick, restore sight to the blind, or, in John chapter 9, create eyes that can see. I was blind, but now I see. So how about you? Will you believe? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And if not, why not? What will it take? If you're able, I'd invite you to join me in standing for the reading from God's Word, John chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Allow me to read it for us. Verse 1 of John chapter 9. As he passed by, that's Jesus. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, 
this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and applied the clay to his eyes, and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors, those who previously saw him as a beggar, were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. And so I went away and washed, and I received sight. They said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. You may be seated. Bow with me. Father, Jesus was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. Indeed, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now we hold this written word in our hands, God-breathed, infallible, inerrant, sufficient, and profitable for teaching, for reproving, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that we might be adequate, equipped for every good work. Father, use this event in the life of Jesus as reported by the Apostle John to teach us, reprove us, correct us, and train us in righteousness so that we might be adequate, equipped for every good work that you intend for us to do, both collectively and individually, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was a cold January morning in 2007. In Washington, D.C. metro station, a man with a violin. He played six Bach pieces for about 45 minutes. During that time, approximately 2,000 people went through the station, most of them on their way to work. After three minutes, a middle-aged man noticed that there was a musician playing. He slowed his pace and stopped for a few seconds and then hurried to meet the next train. Four minutes later, 
the violinist received his first dollar. A woman passing by threw it into the hat without barely slowing her pace. Six minutes later, a young man leaned against the wall to listen to him, then looked at his watch and darted off to catch the next train. Ten minutes. A three-year-old boy stopped, but his mother tugged him and hurried him along. The kid stopped to look at the violinist again, but the mother pushed hard, and the child continued to walk, turning his head all the time. This action was repeated by several other children. Every parent, without exception, forced their children to move on quickly. 45 minutes, the musician played continuously. Only six people stopped and listened for a short while. About 20 gave money but continued to walk in their normal pace. The man, after 45 minutes, had collected $32. One hour, he finished playing and silence took over. No one noticed, no one applauded, nor was there any recognition. No one knew this, but the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the greatest musicians in the world. He played the most intricate pieces ever written with a violin worth $3.5 million. Two days before, Joshua Bell sold out a concert in a theater in Boston where tickets sold for an average of $100 each. The story is true. Joshua Bell playing incognito in a metro station was part of a social experiment sponsored by the Washington Post. It was about people's perception, tastes, and priorities. Here's the questions they posed at the end of the experiment. In a commonplace environment at an inappropriate hour, do we perceive beauty? Do we stop to appreciate it? Do we recognize talent in an unexpected context? And finally, how many other things are we missing? Henry David Thoreau, an American writer, wrote, it is not what you look at that matters, it's what you see. John chapter 9 is a simple, straightforward story of Jesus healing a man, blind, a man blind from birth. But, stop, but let's stop long enough. Look a little closer. Listen a little harder. We may see some theological implications beyond that display of supernatural power. This event provides a clear evidence of Jesus' deity, no question. 
He is God dressed in human flesh. But it also displays the power of perception. You may not be a blind man from birth. Your vision may be 20-20, and yet you've missed it. You walk right by without giving it a second thought because it's not what we look at that matters. It's what we see. Different people see things differently. The participants in the healing of the man blind from birth saw him differently. Did you notice what Jesus' disciples saw? Look at verse 1 and 2. And he passed by. He saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? The disciples of Jesus saw a theological dilemma that needed to be solved. Their question made a direct connection between suffering and sin. From where they were standing, it was either this man and or his parents that were totally responsible for his blindness. That was the popular Jewish understanding of the day. It was a cause and effect relationship. If you sin you suffer. Those who were doing well financially, relationally, physically, were obviously living lives that please God. It was a simple cause and effect relationship. But wait a minute. What about that story of Job? Listen to God's evaluation of Job in chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him in the earth, no one like him, a blameless and upright man. That's God's evaluation. Fearing God and turning away from evil. And you know the rest of the story. Satan was allowed to crush Job. Take everything from him. Wealth, children, even his health. And then Job's friends arrive. Turn with me to Job chapter 2. Right at the end of the chapter. Maybe I should say Job's so-called friends arrive. Verse 11, now when Job's three friends heard of all the adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildah the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. 
Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. And then they started to speak. What a disaster. With friends like that, who needs enemies, right? You know the story. They were absolutely convinced that Job had somehow sinned and brought all this calamity upon himself. In the end, God challenges them and us on passing judgments based on our limited perspectives and finite understanding. God is the only sovereign one. We can't lose sight of Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. Let me be clear. Sin does, however, lie at the root of all suffering and pain. Someday that's all going to be rectified. It's true. But to conclude that every bad circumstance or manifestation of less than perfectness can be attributed to a specific sin in a person's life, that just goes way too far. And Scripture doesn't teach that. There's not always a direct and observable connection between sin and suffering. The disciples of Jesus looked at the man blind from birth and saw a theological dilemma that needed to be solved. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus wasted no words in his response to their question. They saw a theological dilemma to be be solved. Jesus saw a work of God to be displayed. And he continues in verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of his spittle and applied clay to his eyes. And he said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed, and he came back seeing. Allow me to point out four things that I don't want us to miss in this section of the story. First of all, you may want to circle that word, we, at the beginning of verse 4. Interesting, Jesus includes his disciples in working the works of God. And if it was a we for Jesus, working with a bunch of less than perfect, ordinary men, according to Acts chapter 4, verse 13, the NIV and the NASB, it refers to them as 
uneducated and untrained men, how much more should it be a we for you and I? Working the works of God will employ all of us, every one of us, without exception, all working together, pulling in the same direction. And that's why I pray as I do for the rock. Father, enable us to be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. Join me. Join me in making that a part of your prayer for this church. And then let's follow that up by making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. It's a we. The last phrase of verse 4 seems to communicate a sense of urgency. Work as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Procrastination is the enemy of the work of God, especially those waiting to be displayed. Remember Chuck Tate's Pearl of Wisdom from my days at Oxford Baptist Church. To think a thing and to say a thing does not necessarily mean that it is done. To think a thing and to say a thing. So I think it, good idea, communicate it to Cynthia, and it feels like it's been done. Not the case. We must not put off until tomorrow what we're capable of doing today. And I don't think we struggle with being sluggers here at the Rock. I think we're hard workers, as far as I can see. But I do think sometimes that our priorities and insatiable appetites may infringe on those precious ministry hours. Keep up the good fight. Keep fighting. Maintain a sense of urgency. Needs to get done. Verse 5 ties this event back to chapter 8, verse 12. It says, it reads, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. We'll talk more about this verse in a few minutes. But suffice to say that when Jesus said it the first time, he was standing in the midst of the temple, surrounded by the Jews. Those people who formed the official opposition, the religious heavyweights of his day those who were seeking all the more to kill him. Now in John chapter 9, he's outside the temple, speaking to one who is on the very fringes of society, a beggar, a man, blind from birth. And yet, his message remains the same same message. Our message in word and deed needs to be consistent wherever we find ourselves. Standing in front of kings and those in authority over us or speaking with society's castaways. 
has to be the same message. From the youngest to the oldest, the message remains the same. Let me ask you, what's with the spit and mud? What's that all about? And the pool of Siloam. Which, by the way, is in the far southeast corner of the city of Jerusalem. The temple's up near the north end on the east side of the city. Interesting. Jesus could have created new eyes instantaneously, just like he did that man who was lame for 38 years. Get up and walk instantly. He stood up and walked. So what's happening here? Here we find Jesus taking the initiative, and I think that's always the critical first step. But he seems to be willing to only go so far. He could have created those new eyes. But on this occasion, the man blind from birth was sent to the pool of Siloam. I would say that's how it often works. We're provided with the resources and then given the opportunity to respond in faith. Jesus is not a door smasher or a party crasher. Not yet, anyway. The first time he came as a lamb. The second time, it says he comes as a lion. But Revelation chapter 3 paints a picture that we may want to keep him up. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, will dine with him, and he with me. Jesus is not going to impose himself on us. But he does provide us with the resources. And then the opportunity to respond appropriately to his initiatives. The disciples saw a theological dilemma to be solved. Jesus saw a work of God to be displayed. Look at verse 8. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, this is the, the man born blind. I am the one. The neighbors and others saw this as a mistaken identity that needed to be investigated. I'm not sure what makes these acquaintances of the man blind from birth react the way they did. I think I'm being generous in my description. What do you think? Do they represent the normal skepticism, being in the presence of a supernatural event? Or do you think they're more part of Jesus' official opposition, resistors, stubborn unbelievers. Maybe they're just 
cautious late adopters. Their next move does nothing to alleviate my suspicion. Because in John chapter 9, verse 13, we read, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. I was not aware of this, but you may know that statistics show that most flat tires occur on Monday mornings and Friday afternoons. Someone asked, why, is, why at those times? To which another responded, real flat tires? Or unverified reports of flat tires? All I know is that Monday mornings are when most people don't want to go in. And Friday afternoons are when most people don't want to go back. The disciples saw a theological dilemma to be solved. Jesus saw a work of God to be displayed. And these neighbors or associates saw a mistaken identity to be investigated or worse. Look at the end of verse 9 again. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Salome and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. The man born blind saw confusion that needed to be clarified. What a great witness. He's persistent, and he provides a clear, simple explanation of exactly what Jesus had done for him. Nothing more and nothing less. Didn't dramatize it, just told it exactly how it happened. And notice it's okay to admit, I don't know, I do not know. One event for very different perspectives. The disciples saw a theological dilemma to be solved. Jesus saw a work of God to be displayed. The neighbors and associates saw a mistaken identity to be investigated. The man born blind saw a confusion to be clarified. You know, there are other instances in these gospel accounts where Jesus heals people who are blind. But this is the only case where it happened the man who was born blind. I don't think that's by accident. John, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, chose this instance this sign to point to Jesus' deity? For sure. But perhaps he's revealing something about us. People in general. This is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels in which the sufferer is said to have been afflicted from birth. We're all blind from birth, spiritually speaking. 
every one of us. The theological term is the depravity of man. Here's an explanation you may find helpful. The Bible teaches what has been called total or pervasive depravity to describe the corruption and pollution of sin passed down from Adam. Total depravity emphasizes the devastating impact of sin on a person and covers three related concepts. Number one, the pollution and corruption of all aspects of the person. Every inch of us is touched by sin. Two, the complete inability of a person to respond to God. We don't have it. We're not capable of it on our own. And thirdly, universality, in that all are conceived and born as sinners. Listen to Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And that's not the mother's act. That's just conception. At conception, he's a sinner. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from them. Even children are sinners, as cute as they may be. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 and 19. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Point is that all of us are in trouble. Whether we recognize it or not, the human heart, according to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. That's my heart, and that's your heart. Further, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, we are informed that the God of this world had blinded, has blinded the minds of unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Turn with me for just a moment to 1 John chapter 1. The same apostle that wrote the Gospel of John is writing again here in this epistle. Verse 5 of 1 John chapter 1. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I referred to John chapter 8, verse 12 earlier. Jesus, you'll remember, is participating at the Feast of Tabernacles. The Festival of Lights was part of their celebration. It involved four giant candelabras, you'll remember, 60 feet high, 
and they lit up the city of Jerusalem every night of the feast. It was to remind the Israelites when God led their parents, their ancestors, through the wilderness by that pillar of fire. That was the intention. Here in John chapter 8, it's the seventh day of the feast that's coming to an end. The seven-day feast, and this is the last day. Jesus, perhaps, is standing in the very shadows of those giant candelabras when he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Following Jesus is a remedy for spiritual blindness. Following Jesus, believing in his name, receiving him, trusting Jesus alone for your salvation, all communicates the same message. We need to acknowledge our depravity, repent of our sin, ask God for forgiveness and acceptance based on Jesus' accomplishments, because he did for us what we could never do for ourselves, lived a perfect life, died a horrible death by crucifixion to pay the price for your sin and mine. Find a way to the pool of Siloam. The words of the Apostle Paul, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Spirit. Walk in the light means following Jesus. It's God's remedy for spiritual blindness. I remember as a youngster wading through snowdrifts from the old farmhouse to the barn, stepping in my grandfather's footprints. Peter wrote, He, that is Jesus, He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. Turn with me back to the beginning of John's Gospel, John chapter 1, verse 4. We've studied these way back at the beginning. <laughs> in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Drop down to verse 9. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. Walking in the light means following Jesus. And walking in the true light means we will be enlightened. Because it says, enlightens every man. The blind man had never known light. He had spent his entire life in darkness. And notice it's an enlightenment that's available for everyone, all of us. And not just for our salvation, but also for our sanctification. That process where we are becoming more and more like Jesus, like the old chorus says, little by little every day, He's changing me. I'm not the same person that I used to be. 
little by little, every day, he's changing me. But remember, he applies the mud and then sends us to the pool of Siloam. How will you respond? I love the way those commercials end for Motel 6. And we'll leave the light on for you. Have you seen them? And we'll leave the light on for you. Folks, Jesus has left the light on for us. It's not what you look at that matters. It's what we see. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the reminder that so many reminders in this passage, but that our perspective is so critical and that we're dependent on you to take the initiative and then enabling us to respond appropriately so that we can actually see spiritual realities. Thanks for the reminder of that this morning. And we pray that we would take the time, slow down, and notice and really see the spiritual realities that you're speaking into our lives through your word, through the interactions we have with other people, that we get the message and respond appropriately. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.